back, everyone. As always, I'm your host, Jordan Wasserberger, and today I am joined by Strauss Zelnick. Strauss has been a partner in Zelnick Media since 2001 and became chairman of Take Two Interactive in March 2007 and then CEO in January of 2011. Throughout his tenure at Take Two, Strauss has been an inspiring and visionary leader, applying sound financial infrastructure and rigor to enable the industry's top creative talent to pursue their passions and deliver incredible entertainment experiences for consumers around the world. Strauss has been instrumental in establishing a strong corporate culture that is diverse, inclusive, and respectful, and is driven by Take Two's mission to be the most innovative, creative, and efficient entertainment company in the world. Strauss holds a JD MBA from Harvard University and a BA from Wesleyan University. He currently serves on the boards of directors of Starwood Property Trust, Education Networks of America, and the Entertainment Software Association. Additionally, Strauss served as chairman of the board for CBS for 2018, from 2018 to 2019. Strauss is an associate member of the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences and is a trustee emeritus of Wesleyan University. Before we get started, Strauss, is there anything you'd like to add? Mm -hmm. No, it's already a lot. <laughs> All right. Well, look, you are one of few people in the world to have successfully run four different types of media entertainment companies with BMG, with music, 20th Century Fox and film, Columbia Pictures and television and interactive entertainment with both Crystal Dynamics and Take-Two Interactive. What initially drew you to focus your career on the entertainment industry? I wish I had a great answer. I was always interested in entertainment, even though I wasn't allowed to watch television at home. Um, and for some reason, I was just uh, excited about the notion of running a movie studio ever since I can remember, like from my earliest memories. And uh, that's initially what I pursued. Initially, I wanted to be in the movie business. And television was just a stop along the way, I thought. Then home, then home entertainment, and then I found myself in the movie business at both Vestron and 20th Century Fox. Um, so it, it, I don't have a good reason. I always was captivated by entertainment. And like many people who work in the entertainment immediate business, I started by thinking I'd be a performer. So I, I thought about being an actor and I was a musician, albeit not a very good one. And luckily I had the presence of mind um, to realize that I didn't have much performing talent or creating talent, but I seemed to have some facility for, for determining whether other people had talent. What, uh, you mentioned you were, you were a musician. What instrument did you play? Guitar. Oh, I play piano. <laughs> uh, you know, you've spent an incredible amount of time in, in all of these different sectors. What similarities of those sectors that you've worked in, you know, common threads, themes, factors for success, risks of failure, are there some similarities between those? And if there are, what makes the interactive entertainment industry so different? I mean, it's now become the largest and fastest growing segment of all entertainment. Why, why might that be? Well, so there are two questions. The first is what are the commonalities among entertainment businesses? And the answer is it's all about creating hits. Mm -hmm. So it, it seems that long tail notwithstanding and you know, the, the massive creator economy notwithstanding, really big economic hits always drill down to 10 or 20 at a time in, in, every, in every industry within entertainment. Um, and if you have the ability to, to find the most talented people and give them the resources, both emotional and financial, to pursue their passions, you have the opportunity to create those hits. And those are big economic events. Um, and all the businesses that I've worked in were driven by our ability or lack of ability to make 
massive hits. Why is interactive entertainment so huge compared to other businesses? Um, because it speaks to a very broad audience uh, in a way that other entertainment businesses don't necessarily. Um, so interactive entertainment today offers something for everyone. So we have hyper-casual mobile games that skew older and female. We have very deep, challenging console and PC games that speak to a younger, more male demographic. Um, then there are games that speak to a mixed demographic, both age-wise and, and gender-wise. Um, interactive entertainment also can, can captivate consumers for a long period of time. So a TV show will engage you for half an hour or an hour. Um, music will engage you for three minutes for a song, but a video game can engage you for hundreds of hours. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, in, in 1993, when you left 20th Century Fox to helm Crystal Dynamics, some on paper might have viewed that as a leap of faith. What allowed you to you know, take that quote unquote leap and really break into this new industry? It was, very, it was a leap of faith. It wasn't just on paper. You know, I, I sold my home in West Los Angeles at a loss. I moved my young family to Northern California. And I invested all the money I had, which wasn't much, in Crystal Dynamics. I, I invested more in Crystal Dynamics than Kleiner Perkins did, and they were the, the seed venture capital for the company. Um, and I really didn't know much about interactive entertainment at all, but I had a strong sense that video games would become the next huge entertainment business. And you know, having spent seven years running motion picture studios, I understood those economics well. It took me a while, but I did. And they're not great economics. Uh, they weren't great economics then. Um, and anyone's career can only be as good as the enterprise in which that career exists. So an individual's career isn't gonna be better than the sector in which one works, right? But it wouldn't make sense that it could be. And I, I understood that I wasn't gonna be special, that I had a really good career in, in motion pictures and television. Um, but if I really wanted to do something special, I had to find a business that would be more reactive, that would, that would grow more substantially and that had better economics. And the, the economics of the video game business, particularly in those days, but still in many ways to this day, looked a lot more like the motion picture business pre-1955 when everything changed in, in, in the movie business um, than it did or does like the movie business of today which is to say it's a studio system. And if you want to distinguish between a good entertainment business and a less good entertainment business, the good entertainment businesses, and by good, I mean economically viable businesses, have studio systems. And what a studio system alludes to is that the creative talent is on the payroll of the enterprises, uh, as opposed to the creative talent being independent contractors. So in the movie business, um, if I want to make a movie tomorrow, I just have to find the capital. I don't have to work at a particular company. I don't have to have you know, any particular resources. I just have to come up with the money. And then I can hire, uh, if, if they find the project appealing, either economically or creatively or both, any director, any writer, any actor. They're not beholden to anyone else ever. But if you wanna make a great video game and you're looking around and saying, who has the best talent? And you say, oh, I really want this person who's leading a group at Microsoft. Um, first of all, it's probably going to be real, really hard to extract that person from the team they're working on, the project they're working on um, in the first place. They're employed, they're committed. Secondly, um, 
they're they're not alone. Our our games are made by hundreds or thousands of people, and one individual matters, but one individual does not create a video game. So it's really hard to um, to create games as a singular individual. Therefore, it's really hard to pry a single individual out of a team and build something around them. So the, that creates barriers to entry and barriers to success that protect the incumbents. Uh, and you know, we're, we're an incumbent. Um, so building an incumbent, which is what I set out to do when I joined Crystal Dynamics and what, what I set out to do when our firm took over Take-Two, uh, if you're successful at it, can create a lot of value. And that value can be protectable value, and much less uh, true in motion pictures. So I had some sense, I had some sense that economically, if we were successful, it made sense. Yeah. And, and I did have just a gut feeling that the video game business was going to be huge. Thankfully, I was right about that. Well, that is a, that is a level of foresight and intuition, uh, but I bet, I bet everyone wishes they had. But I'm glad you brought up the structure of the video game industry, because it's actually a phenomenal segue into, into my next question. You see, a few years ago, the gaming industry was composed of a relative balance between real high-quality first-party studios controlled by Sony and Microsoft and then a menagerie of independent publishers of various sizes, right? Sony owned and still owns renowned developers like Naughty Dog and Insomniac, and on Microsoft's end, you have major popular franchises with Halo and Forza. And then between those islands of exclusivity, there's this sea of world-class third-party developers like Take-Two, uh, who are creating amazing experiences open to all platforms. But then you look to today and things are very different. The most prolific fish in that sea have been scooped up. Microsoft just purchased Bethesda and Activision, which is still pending. And Sony recently acquired Bungie. I mean, even among those third-party publishers and studios, there's been a lot of movement, most notably with your own combination with Zynga and then EA's purchase of Glue Mobile. And as someone who spent time leading a small studio with Crystal Dynamics and now helming a studio at the complete opposite end of the spectrum, what are your thoughts on those acquisitions and what they might mean for consumers and smaller studios going forward? Um, hopefully it's good for consumers in that the bigger companies have the resources to invest in better, better games um, and, and more exciting um, entertainment properties. That should benefit consumers. Certainly, we believe that having the force of capital that we have and the creativity aggregated in one place, that should, that should redound to the benefit of consumers. Um, I, I think, will life get somewhat harder for smaller developers? It already was. I don't think that these transactions make life harder. I think they're a reflection of the fact that life was getting harder. It'll make it harder. But more resources are needed to make really big experiences and even to make small experiences like mobile games. The risk profile is such that you need to be incredibly well capitalized to pursue those opportunities uh, because most, most of the time new releases in mobile fail, which means that you have to be able to withstand fa that failure and play another day. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think you know, there is this fear that as Sony and Microsoft continue to acquire studios, games are going to become more and more exclusive. I think there, there is hope that that may not happen, that we may enter a world of complete cross-platform play, but we'll have to see what happens. But I do think that even among, even while Sony and Microsoft are making similar moves, 
there is a fundamental difference between their ideologies on the future of the industry. With the advent of Xbox and PC Game Pass, Microsoft very clearly believes in a world beyond the Xbox console. In buying these particular studios, their goal is to make Game Pass the premier place to buy to play games, whether it's on a console or a PC or wherever with the xCloud. The driving metric for Microsoft is no longer how many consoles or titles they sell, but rather how many users sign on to what is one of the best deals in gaming. And while Sony is attempting to bolster their subscription offerings with the newly revealed PlayStation Plus, PlayStation Now menagerie thing, I don't really know how to describe it, uh, they haven't created anything comparable to Game Pass, and it doesn't seem like they necessarily want or need to. The biggest draw of Game Pass, the ability to get select titles day one as part of your tiered package, doesn't really matter to Sony. Right, their exclusives sell incredibly well. God of War 2018 and Horizon Forbidden West sold 20 million copies each, the latter within two months. Spider-Man on the PS4 in 2018 sold 3.3 million copies in its first three days, making it the fastest-selling first-party game of all time. And their ability to rapidly churn out high-quality exclusive titles has been a powerful allure for consumers. The PS5 and PS4 outsold their Xbox competitors 2-1 to one in both generations. So with all that being said, how does Take-Two view these services and subscriptions? Do you envision a world in which Take-Two creates its own standalone service where consumers can have access to both previously released and new upcoming releases? Or, as has essentially been Sony's philosophy, do the individual sales from titles, DLC, virtual currency, does all of that make a you know Take-Two Game Pass sort of unrealistic? I think it's hard for any one company to have a broad-based subscription service because consumers want their, their entertainment aggregated in general. general. Um, I'm not sure subscription makes sense for interactive entertainment at all because for most people, they, they play the same game or games for you know one, two, three, four months and to pay a subscription to have access to them versus paying once, that doesn't make much sense either. I think there's probably a small group of subscribers who would like to experiment with all different kinds of games. You just said yourself, you think Game Pass is a great deal. Well, if you're an avid, truly avid gamer and you want to go play some independent title that was released seven years ago that you never bought, you don't really want to buy, then I think Game Pass can be exciting for you. I, I, I think the notion of putting frontline product on a subscription service instead of selling it to consumers um, who will pay for it, uh, as, as you just mentioned, that doesn't make any sense at all to me. And I've said that publicly. So I think subscription can coexist with the, the current business model of selling frontline product um, and selling downloadable add-on content. And of course, having free-to-play titles and free-to-play mobile titles uh, successfully. I think if one believes that the entire business becomes a subscription business and all games sit on a subscription platform from day one, I don't think that's realistic, and I think there's very little evidence that that will that will happen. Yeah, I mean, even for me, like I admit, Game Pass is a great deal. I don't subscribe. I have not bought a tier of Game Pass outside of whenever Microsoft does their oh, you know, you get it for three months for one dollar a month. Right, but um, you know, how many games do you play at a time? Exactly. I mean, right now it's four or five. That's it. And, and that's, those that's a lot for most people. It's one or two. Yeah, and those four or five, one of those four or five happens to be a game that at this point is has been ongoing for five years. Right. Um, so, yeah. But you really want to pay for a subscription if you're playing fewer than five games. 
exactly. it would be much more economical to just buy the games and own the games. Exactly. So um, I, I'm skeptical. I think I also think look, any offering has to first and foremost meet consumers' needs, not yeah. executives' needs. Like executives' needs don't matter. <laughs> Investors' needs don't matter. What matters is the consumer. And so you have to ask yourself, what does a consumer want? I think for a lot of the people who are building subscription services, they've kind of looked at what Netflix did and said, we want to be Netflix without asking themselves, what does the consumer want? Right. The analogy between what Netflix does or HBO Plus, you know, Disney does, and what Game Pass does is broken. They're very different things. In linear entertainment, an average American household watches 150 hours a month. That's like over 100 properties. And you're not re-watching those properties. Well, to pay 15 or 20 bucks a month for that, pretty good deal. That makes sense from a consumer point. Let's put to the side from a studio point of view, which yeah. has its own uh, uh, issues. But again, you know, the average American household consumes 45 hours of interactive entertainment. And that's, you know, one, two or three titles. So are they really looking for an all-you-can-eat service for 15 or 20 bucks? And I think the answer is probably not. Yeah. So, so then what, what you're trying to do then is induce them. And now, why are you even playing this game? Like trying to con convince a consumer to do something that doesn't come naturally, that, that's a really hard thing to do in business. Uh, so look, we'll, we'll, we'll be there if consumers want us to be there. We definitely make our products available uh, to subscription, but they're usually, they are catalog products in almost all circumstances. In the few situations where we've made frontline products available to subscription, you know, we did so because it was economically beneficial because of our relationship with the platform owner. Um, and we could conceptually do that as well now and then. But from a consumer point of view, I think subscription will end up being kind of a long tail business for the avid consumer. But I could, be, I could be mistaken. And if I am, then we'll be where the consumer is. Well, I think that philosophy and this you know, sort of to an extent answers my next question, but I think that philosophy of the consumer needs have to come force have to come first is a powerful one um and clearly it's it's netted take two with with some tremendous success and in that vein take two has an unbelievably diverse roster of games under its umbrella right i mean sid mayer civilization is undisputably the champ of of those forex strategy games next to bungie you are one of the pioneers of the looter shooter genre with borderlands and probably the most successful live service game of all time with GTA Online. And then similarly, you have Rockstar under your belt, which has created unbelievable single player experiences, both in GTA and in, and in things like Red Dead Redemption. That kind of quality is only really possible when world-class studios have a culture of collaborative productivity that values quality and developer health over things like release windows, microtransactions, all that kind of stuff. At the same time, where Take-Two has been so successful over the past uh, however many years, we've seen story after story of AAA developers with severe crunch time, job instability, and then an overall deeply toxic work environment. And so I want to know, how has Take-Two managed to keep up this unbelievable streak without compromising developer work life? Well, we haven't been perfect at it. So there have been moments where we too have been criticized. I would say in general, we're really proud of our culture. Uh, it, it has always been a culture of transparency, honesty, inclusion, um, and kindness uh, in service of very ambitious creative and business goals. And, uh, and it's worked out. 
you know, we said we, we value eccentricity. We just don't accept bad behavior. Mm-hmm. And that's always been the case. So, and that's known as that at the top of the company and we live it every day. Um, and when tested, we make hard decisions. Uh, so I would say culture like characters tested in the breach. It's easy to make, it's easy to make the hard decisions when they're not hard, yeah. <laughs> when they're hard, it's a little bit different. Um, but if you truly believe in your culture, then you have to make decisions that are in service of the culture. And that means certain people can't work at our enterprise. Um, I think crunch, for example, which you mentioned, that's something that was common in the business, including our company until relatively, relatively recently. And our colleagues have basically just said, we don't want to do that anymore. You know, we, we're willing to work really hard on an ongoing basis, but we don't want to pull all-nighters. So we have to structure our schedules differently, and, and we are doing so. So I wouldn't say that we're above reproach. Um, we try really hard to create a rational, sound, uh, communicative, as I said, kind culture. Uh, we fall short, uh, but we try and we try and we try again. Yeah. Um, and there are certain things that we do that are in service of that culture. For example, we're, we're a very flat organization. Uh, there are really six senior executives who run take two at the corporate level. We all sit in one hallway, uh, in one office, we have three assistants, that's it. You know, there's no, there are no layers underneath us. There's no chief of staff. There's no, you know, no one wandering out of earpieces. Um, you know, there's no private dining room. There's, we don't have any of that. We, we run a very thin corporate culture and our corporate team is in service of the people who actually make the entertainment and market and distribute the entertainment. That's where the work is done. It's not done at the corporate level. We're there to, you know, we're there as servant leaders. And um, everyone knows that I feel that way. And then we're highly accessible. So, you know, I'm on Slack and all of my colleagues have my cell number, have my personal email, and there's no barrier in between me and all my colleagues. Um, We also have compensation programs that are formulaic. People are compensated in accordance with the company's performance, not based on whether, you know, I like, you know, I like their smile in the workplace or don't. So by taking discretionary compensation out of the mix, people are encouraged to, to do what drives their compensation programs, which is create more success and reduce the cost of operating. Uh, everyone is a participant in our PL. Uh, if you take the, the stated culture along with the economic incentives, you put them together, I think that's how you achieve the results that we've achieved. Also, look, I have to make decisions every day that are in service of our strategy, which you, you mentioned earlier, which is to be the most creative, the most innovative, and the most efficient company in the entertainment business, writ large, not just interactive entertainment. And those are really nice, um, very high-minded words. But every day we actually try to, to do those things. And again, decisions to do them are hard. It's hard to be really efficient. It's easier to be sloppy. It's hard to be innovative because you're taking risks that often don't pay off. And it's really hard to be creative. And it means we have to hire the best talent. We have to pay them very well. Uh, and we have to support them. And then most importantly, we have to encourage them, as I do every day, to pursue what they're passionate about and take massive creative risk, which means now and then we fail. Uh, and the way we are able to, to fail and still go on to play again is that we have a very conservative financial backbone. So we have very little debt. We generate a lot of cash. Um, we're very, very conservatively managed from a financial point of view. I like to say that uh, my approach to create, to create running a creative business 
is to be risk forward creatively, very risk forward creatively, and highly risk averse financially. That's awesome. How do you feel the gaming industry in general can improve opportunities for minority groups and overall create a more inclusive and respectful space? Well, we're really focused on it. So we're participating in, in many instances, are the lead, the lead participant in programs that will bring underrepresented populations into the interactive entertainment business. And we're starting you know, with, with high school students and even younger than that, because people who may never come to take two, but hopefully will enter the industry by supporting STEM education for girls, by supporting uh, uh, arts education, STEM education, engineering education for all kinds of underrepresented groups. Um, we also have numerous inclusive opportunities at our own firm. We have diversity officers. So you, you start, of course, you know, at home, which is to say, we want to make sure that we have this diverse uh, a culture and diverse a community at Take-Two and all of our affiliates as possible. Um, and in fact, from a gender perspective, we are already highly diverse, including at the highest levels. Um, from an ethnic perspective, we're more diverse than most entertainment companies, but we have a long way to go. And then, as I said, we're not stopping with just where, you know, where we recruit and how we retain. We actually are going back into the community and saying, we need to be, we need to be a proactive force in helping people get trained so that they are able to enter the interactive entertainment business, even if they don't choose to come to take two. Yeah, that's awesome. I know you have a hard cutoff at five, so I'm just going to ask one last question. As a longtime fan of the series, avid gamer in general, I, I feel obligated to ask this. Is there anything you can tell us about GTA 6? Sure. I mean, Rockstar said that there's another another iteration of the series <laughs> coming, so stay tuned. All right. All right. Well, Strauss, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. Uh, what you're doing with Take Two, into both creatively and in terms of supporting minority groups, is is simply phenomenal. And this is great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.